Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. A few weeks back on the podcast, we had Denise Howell uh, talking about the issue of our rather uninformed political class and trying to figure out ways to alert voters to who is most likely to actually understand technology issues uh, among people vying for office. Of course, that was focusing on just one part of our tech illiterate uh, legislators. Uh, another area that we've discussed quite a bit over the years is how Congress itself has voted repeatedly to make itself somewhat illiterate on tech issues. From 1972 through 1995, Congress had an Office of Technology Assessment, which was focused on educating Congress about the various issues related to technology in a clear and somewhat unbiased manner. In 1995, as part of his uh, contract with America, Newt Gingrich defunded the OTA, and while it's technically still in the books, it has basically sat dormant ever since. Uh, a lot of effort has been made to try to bring back the OTA and to start informing Congress about technology again, and while various bills have been introduced over the years, they've tended to go nowhere. Uh, this year, somewhat amazingly, the House Appropriations Bill has put $6 million towards refunding the OTA, which hopefully will actually lead somewhere. Uh, my guests today are two of the people who have been working hard for many, many years to try and help bring back the OTA. Uh, bringing together a fairly broad coalition of often surprising partners uh, who have a fairly simple desire, which is to make sure that Congress is actually better educated on tech issues. Uh, they are uh, Zach Graves, uh, who is the head of policy for Lincoln Network and who's been on the podcast before, and Daniel Schulman, who is the policy director for Demand Progress and has not been on the podcast <laughs> before. Um, together, they put together Future Congress, uh, which can be found at futurecongress.org, and have been working on a variety of different fronts to help ensure that Congress is actually informed about technology. So, Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Um, so I guess let's start with the um, the uh, appropriations thing, since this is this is new, that there's sort of $6 million potentially designated to bring back the OTA. Um, what, what's the deal there? So it's part of the House uh, Legislative Branch Appropriations Bill. It was voted out of committee and is, I think, something Daniel and I both expect to past the floor. The question is, you know, what happens when it goes over to the Senate, which is controlled by Republicans who tend to be a little bit more uh, hostile to this idea for some interesting historical reasons? Um, well, let's let's get into that. It's you know, it, it seems slightly bizarre to me that that anyone is hostile to the idea of Congress being better informed. Um, and I know that that it was the the Republicans who effectively killed OTA back in '95. So, so what what is the reasoning there? So there's a bunch of different you know rationales that have that have come up again as part of the sort of debate to whether we refund this agency. Um, some of them were ones that were actually at play in the mid '90s, and others are are, are newly minted. Um, 
you know, I was just over at the Heritage Foundation talking to a group of conservatives about this issue. And, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely, you know, still people who think this is a bad idea. Uh, part of it is from a pure spending angle mm-hmm. that we, you know, shouldn't be spending money on stuff in government when the private sector can do this. Groups like the Heritage Foundation or the National Academy of Sciences or various other kind of outside entities, you know, can do this kind of analysis and provide this expertise is one argument that's made. Even in the House, you know, we saw partisan disagreement over just what the top line budget number is for the legislative branch, which is, you know, the smallest of the, you know, 12 appropriations subcommittees. It's a relatively tiny fraction of the overall federal budget, uh, yet you still see people sort of fighting, you know, quite in a, in a quite unified way about trying to shrink it. Uh, hmm. it, it so does Heritage see this competition to the, to themselves? Is that part of part of it? Or, or do others you know, see that? I think there may have been part of that as part of the original rationale. Um, but it's not really doing the kind of analysis that Heritage does. For instance, like the, you know, OTA uh, studies are these big, you know, one to two year long projects that involved, you know, half a dozen experts in different fields, a formal peer review process, public, you know, stakeholder consultations. It was like a pretty massive, expensive form of analysis. And mostly the think tank. Uh, you know, the think tanks and advocacy groups in, in Washington, you know, do analysis that's, you know, shorter form that's driven by one or two or maybe three analysts. And that, you know, it's often people who are political operatives rather than PhD experts in scientific or engineering fields. Right. And if I can chime in for a sec, so like, sure. a lot of this is about political performance. You know, people trying to make or score political points. You know, we've cut X amount of dollars off of spending in the legislative branch, or we've, you know, we've killed off this particular program. And, and, and these aren't things that, um, you know, have any real effect on the bottom line for federal spending, but it's it's a great talking point for when you're campaigning or that you can stick in a mailer. And I think a lot of the, the efforts to, to undermine, you know, what was OTA and sort of, and sort of the legislative branch, generally speaking, uh, comes down to uh, the politics of performance as opposed to trying to actually have Congress be better at doing the different types of um, jobs that that are incumbent upon it to accomplish. And I, and I think that's that was a lot of like what killed off OTA in the first place was you know trying to show instead of trying to do. And I think mm-hmm. that some of the resistance that we're getting now is is the same kind of thing. It's it's trying to look like you're doing the right thing as opposed to actually doing the right thing. <laughs> Interesting. So let's go back a little bit and, and you know describe what OTA actually does. And Zach just gave a little bit of a description about doing these sort of really long, in-depth projects to, to look at stuff. But for people who really you know aren't familiar with what OTA did during you know the sort of two decades plus that it did existed, um, can you give sort of a basic description of the kinds of things that it did over the years? Yeah, I mean, so its its mandate was to do these, you know, kind of big forward-looking projects to analyze the impact of technology on society from, you know, a lens that's 
simultaneously kind of social and economic and ethical and looking at it from all these different angles. And the value, uh, in my view, is that it did a, often did an analysis of sort of the trade-offs of different policy approaches to some of these mm-hmm. big emerging technology issues. So, you know, we're still arguing about encryption backdoors. I know that's something you've written a lot. And uh, OTA did, a, you know, analysis of, of this debate, and it largely holds up you know, mm-hmm. what the trade-offs are with trying to do this, or, you know, this is back when they were thinking, thinking about the clipper chip debate, and putting, you know, these, uh, lawmakers, you know, have this, I mean, I think you did this t-shirt that said Nerd Harder, or, you know, right. it ties back to this encryption debate. And I think policymakers think they can sort of ask the tech companies to wave a magic wand and, and nerd harder and make a solution. They don't really understand what technical limitations there are, what the economic trade-offs are for, say, hurting iPhone sales in the rest of the world because it has a mandated backdoor in it, or that there are, you know, what the level of cyber vulnerabilities you're introducing with one particular scheme or another. And they don't really have a good way to do the, to check the homework when an agency like the FBI is sort of rolling in with a scheme that may be well-intentioned but is very myopic in its sort of view of the world right is it um does ota choose which topics to focus on itself or or was it you know directed by members of congress or how does that work i had a bipartisan bicameral oversight board called the technology assessment board which functioned like a joint committee um and this decided you know how to prioritize different requests it was getting and the requests we got were primarily from committee chairman and ranking members uh so it was really something that served committees that were doing big like major legislative you know kind of legacy projects right or informing them about you know what projects they might want to take up that they're exploring right is there a real issue here to how AI and automation will, you know, affect the labor force in the next 20 years, you know, is something you might ask OTA about. But they also did stuff that's, you know, it's got technology in the name, and when we talk about technology, we tend to mean stuff that Google or Facebook cares about, but they meant that in a much broader way, and really anything that has a strong scientific or technical component, so... They covered in practice healthcare, energy, environment, defense, all kinds of issues that, you know, had these sort of technical questions involved in them. And and how big was the budget for OTA back when it last existed? So it was like very tiny in the grand scheme of the federal government. Uh, its peak budget was about $22 million, mm-hmm. which is about $35 million in today's dollars. So... Quite small, the smallest of the you know, legislative support agencies that you know do research and help advise Congress. And part of that was that it served the sort of tactical function of advising committees as they're doing these these big legislative projects. So today, if it existed, it might be working on federal privacy issues and helping them not ask bad questions to Mark Zuckerberg. But more than that, helping them understand the trade-offs of you know there's a dozen or so different proposals for how to fix federal privacy legislation and what we should do and should that be be preemptive and how so and is cyber you know breach stuff included in that and should we have liability for taxia all these questions that i don't think your media and congressional staffer or congressman 
has a real depth of understanding about what the trade-offs of these different options are, and so that sort of puts them in this mode of paralysis, which prevents good but probably necessary you know, policy from happening. And let me put this in sort of a bigger context, if I might. So federal spending overall is about 4 or $5 trillion. Right. Uh, appropriated money is about a trillion and a half. <laughs> um, spending on the legislative branch is $4.5 billion, of which 10% of that is like the Capitol Police, about $450 million. Library of Congress is 600 or 700 million money for GAO. Uh, we spent about 325 million dollars on committees, which is down by 100 million dollars in the House over the last decade. Um, and so it puts this in the context of, you know, this is a very tiny percent of a very small legislative branch budget, which is one third of one percent of the overall federal spending uh, on in a given year. And the value here is that this tiny amount of money can help drive decisions that have economic consequences that are many multiples the size of, of, of what it would cost to pay for you know, a set of analyses or something like that. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it, it seems like pretty obviously, you know, and, and you know, I, I've been supportive of this effort overall, from, you know, from the beginning, because I, I, I think it's important. I'm, I'm still sort of puzzling through the reasons why, why so many people seem to be against it. Um, you know, it's the Congress voting to make themselves less knowledgeable on an issue, that, you know, on a, a set of issues that are obviously so important. Right. Uh, so, and, I mean, and, and, can, and that, so I want to say like, that's part of a, a very right, broad it's a bigger trend. trend. Right. right. So when, when Gingrich came into power in 1995, he killed off OTA. He tried to kill off CBO. Uh, he was responsible for a 20% cut in the legislative branch, generally speaking. There's a thousand fewer House committee staffers now than there was 25 years ago. There's 2,000 fewer people at the government's watchdog, the Government Accountability Office, which was responsible for rooting out waste, fraud, and abuse. So right. this, was a, this was performance. This was a right. performative effort to demonstrate, look, we think the government should be smaller, so we're going to start at home. But what they didn't realize and, is they were tying a rope around their neck and cutting off the oxygen to the brain. Right? <laughs> I mean, to put that in context, like, you know, like a thousand or two thousand, that may not, you know, be grand. You know, I mean, those of us who don't work in Congress might not get that, but that's, you know, nearly 40% of their, wow. you know, staffing capacity. And beyond just raw numbers of staff, we've also seen a big shift of staffing priorities away from policy expertise towards political messaging, towards constituent communications. There are more people as a percentage in district offices now. So there's like all of these things come together, put a really enormous brain drain on the institution. And if you're a conservative, I think it's hard to make the case that that has, you know, led to like a limited government outcome. The federal government overall has grown substantially since Gingrich made those cuts to Congress. Congress is much less uh, well equipped to you know, conduct oversight and rein in executive agencies. They're mm -hmm. forced to delegate more to administrative agencies, and they're not really equipped to understand the kinds of things that the executive branch is telling them. Part of the original hearings and, you know, when they were setting up OTA, uh, they talked about doing it to help 
you know, build more expertise and capacity in Congress so that they could put a stronger check on what the executive branch is doing. Um, and so I think you've seen overall a really, you know, dramatic decrease in thoughtful, deliberative policymaking. There's a lot more posturing and a lot less time spent really grappling with some of these tough issues. As a, you know, to illustrate this point, uh, you know, since, you know, the 96th Congress, which was 78, uh, 79 to 80, you know, there's a 66% decline in the number of committee and subcommittee meetings. Like, there's just, like, an enormous, like, smaller amount of time spent doing real substantive work. Right. And, I mean, one of the arguments that I've seen is that, you know, for a lot of the tech issues that, um, you know, effectively lobbyists can sort of fill in where where OTA uh, was useful before, that you would have, you know, experts from these different industries um, or from civil society or whatever who can explain things to Congress. Now, I think we've all experienced why that doesn't work. <laughs> um, but that is one of the arguments that I've seen brought up that people say, well, you know, it, it doesn't need to be the government that is informing Congress that there are other ways to inform Congress of these things. Um, what's, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? So let me speak to that as someone who is a federally registered lobbyist. It's a terrible argument, right? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is entitled to their own opinion but not their own facts. And Congress needs someone who works for Congress who can help them discover what the facts are. I mean, one of the reasons that many of these legislative branch agencies were created, like CRS and uh, GAO and so forth, was because you couldn't trust the executive branch. Like, they were cooking the books and the numbers and they had their own legal opinions, so you need to have a legislative branch equivalent to sort of check their math. Well, you know, lobbyists uh, who are paid for by outside entities that have their own perspectives that they're trying to sell, um, they have, you know, they have their own incentives. And Congress needs someone who they can turn to and say, what should I trust here? Like, what's real here? What's not? What are the realm of options that are available to me? You know, you would never trust a salesman to come and tell you, well, yeah, you know, it looks like your air conditioner is broken and you got to get a new one. Like, it doesn't, it, does, it doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't. If you're making billion-dollar like, decisions, you wouldn't do stuff that way. Right. Uh, and Congress like shouldn't do it that way either. And, Mike, you're a tech journalist. I mean, imagine if you let, you know, uh, you know, Apple or the NSA do the first draft of all of your pieces. Before oh, you even better. Even better. Just print the press releases. Like, you don't even right. need to do it. Like, just take it and just put it into law, and you can give them the money, and, like, it'll be totally fine. It's, you know, like, the, the truth of the world is you get what you pay for. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, you know, if, 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 if you're not the customer, then you're the one who's, you know, one whose stuff is being sold. Right. In in this case, Congress is the one like they the money that they put towards resources or the determinations that they make about what policies to do. If they're not the ones who are buying the information, it's, it's the, they're the ones who are being sold on things that are stupid. And, and that's what happens. Like we have ongoing discussions over things that are not subject to debate. Uh, or, or at least, like, there isn't a reasonable both sides kind of thing to it. Uh, right. But we get, you know, look at the encryption debate. You know, there are obvious and logical consequences that come to putting back doors on stuff. And you can't pretend, you know, there is no magical solution to address the problem there. Um, right. And you just have to deal with the reality. Um, and, that's, and that's it. Like, 
this is the world as it exists and there's no more to it than that. Yeah, um, I'm going to cut in here for a second and just make sure that Zach's mic is working because it seemed to disappear for a second. So I'm here. Can you hear me? Uh, uh, you got, you're quieter. I'm quieter? Yeah, it's, it sounds like your mic is mm. far away now. Nope. Your AirPods, it's not working? Uh, now it seems to be back. Okay. Huh, uh, weird. All right. I'll just, I'm going to make a note and then we'll cut out this little interlude but okay uh all right let's go back um so there there are these other organizations though right i mean there is like the gao and and crs um and so is there an argument that that those organizations can you know or already do or can handle what what ota used to do yeah so i mean daniel and i were just arguing about this last night. I think there's a reasonable argument that GAO can do at least a substantial portion of this. I think there's a terrible argument that CRS should do this. Uh, Daniel, you worked at CRS, so I'm going to let you start with that. And and, and just for, for listeners who don't know, do you want to give a quick background on, on GAO and CRS? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So CRS is the Congressional Research Service. It is the basically the reference arm uh, of the Library of Congress that provides advice to uh, members of Congress on a confidential basis. And it largely does like um, quick turnaround reports and analyses. Like I'm going to go on TV at nine o'clock tonight. You know, what's the top three things on this? Or you can go and go to actually Zach and my website, everycrsreport.com, and you can download uh, their, their reports that sort of describe what does multicast must carry or what's the legal questions around certain entire whatever. Like that's, that's what they do. So it's short form, uh, relatively quick uh, summaries of, of, or of previously available information. It doesn't draw conclusions, but sort of gives you the lay of the land. The Government Accountability Office are the green eye shade people. Like these are, these are Congress's uh, watchdog. There's, there's a ton. Of, so CRS has like 600 people. Uh, two-thirds are analysts. GAO has a couple thousand. Uh, they're the ones who go in and look, this money has been spent appropriately or in, or inappropriately. Uh, they go and they'll look at the operations of programs and say, you should have done run things in a different fashion. Uh, they're, they're the waste, fraud, and abuse people. Like They really sort of look at like what went wrong and how do you do it sort of right in the future. Um, so CRS, quick analyses, short-term, quick turnaround. GAO, very long turnaround, year, year and a half it can be. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's and it's waste, fraud, and abuse. It's that type of stuff. Uh, the role that OTA... So GAO is, generally speaking, a retrospective role. What happened before and how do you make it better? OTA is forward-looking, right? It is prospective. It, it, it's, it's, it's what one of the presidents called the vision thing. Like, it's trying to figure out... What do things look like 5, 10, 20 years down the line? What are the big issues that we need to grapple with? You know, we would call this foresight, like the ability to Mm -hmm. figure out what's coming ahead. Um, And, you know, sort of Zach mentioned, there has been an effort to put some of OTA's former responsibilities inside GAO. Uh, They have a newly stood up office called uh, the STAA, the Science and Technology, I think, Analysis and I forget what it is. Anyway, it, it's <laughs> it, it, it's one of those fun DC acronyms. Um, but but they they uh, are intended to do a lot of the role that that OTA played. Uh, but GAO also has a certain kind of culture. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a way of doing things. I mean, they're independent, they're smart, they're very capable. But it's the here's the checklist of things that were done wrong, and here's what you do right in the future. I mean, I'm I'm being I'm, I'm 
conflating it a little bit, but but that's sort of how they are. So their culture, whether their culture is like the right fit for engaging in foresight, uh, is is an open question. And at least the way I see it, and Zach may see it slightly differently, it makes sense to have GAO sort of looking at you know the structures of programs and what's going well and what's not and where gaps are in program implementation and that kind of thing. And then OTA goes broader and says, well, what does um, uh, gene editing look like in 20 years and what are the policy implications and what are the range of recommendations that Congress must consider or, or whatever may happen to be, whatever the issue is. Uh, and that's sort of the space that's been missing uh, that, that, that needs to be addressed again. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, sorry, Zach, do, what, so what's your take on it? So I want to try and not go too much into the weeds here because I feel like we have diminishing appeal to general listeners and we'll get into <laughs> the intricacies of the GAO org chart. Um, but, like, I generally agree with Daniel that the GAO is going to be weaker at this sort of oversight capability, or at least would have to, you know, put a lot of work into developing the institutional independence and different culture for this office uh, to do that. And right now it is very much a sort of cog in the greater wheel of this bureaucracy. But a lot of the things that OTA was most successful at that are touted as its you know, accomplishments or things related to government programs or expenditures on science and technology. They, you know, helped kill bad, you know, public-private, you know, boondoggles. They helped modernize, you know, the Social Security Administration, uh, Spectrum auctions, you know, electronic health records, things that are very much in the weeds of federal agencies and how they're doing things. And... GAO has a lot of institutional expertise about federal agencies and their programs. They have, as Daniel said, a lot of bean counters and economists and people who are good at analyzing trade-offs of how the federal government is working. And the federal government spends an obscene amount of money already on science and technology-related functions. And so it occurs to me that GAO's STAA will at least be very good at all of this stuff. And there's a lot of stuff to do there. And I think, you know, this is also a really good function to be built out and is sort of, you know, a lot of what OTA did too. I mean, OTA's statute talks a lot about foresight, but in practice, its customers are congressional committees and they're thinking in much more kind of near-term kinds of ways, right? They care about what bill can they start working on while they're still in office, right? They're looking maybe five years in front of them at most. Whereas if you really want to talk about foresight, talk 10, 20, 30, 50 years, right? So, and and let me bring that back. So with what the House of Representatives looks like they're going to do is they're going to put $6 million, and we'll see what it turns out to be, something like that, into reviving the Office of Technology Assessment. And one of the first things that they're going to need to do is to figure out what does it look like in 2019 or in 2020, because the last time it existed was in the mid-90s. Does our structure make sense? Does our mission make sense? GAO is playing a role here. What what is the role that we can play here? And how do we learn from um, what were perceived as problems before? The reports took a long time to come out. 
um, you know, technology has changed, like how they can go and actually do their, you know, do their analysis. Are there things that they can do to be faster, to be more responsive, to deal with more folks and just committee leadership, to make sure that they're not duplicating what's currently out there and to, and to basically sort of fit the moment? And so the first thing that will most likely happen is, well, okay, now that, you know, now that we exist, how do we make sure that we're best structured to, to fit um, the current reality, um, which is very different from the way things used to be? So you think that like, you know, assuming that the 6 million or whatever ends up going through, that it's it's sort of an experimental period where we'll sort of test what a a, a new OTA would, would look like and be like? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a, I think it'll be a period of both experimentation and uh, simultaneously like showing that it is value, like there is, that there mm-hmm. is, a, that the investment is is worth it. I mean, is it if, if if OTA stuff takes a really long time to actually get out? Is, is that going to be an issue where you know if nothing is coming out, it's going to take time to to get it you know ramped up again and then to actually get started on stuff? There may not be very much to evaluate, um, you know, on on that six million dollars, right? Well, I mean, it can be well. So the money's it's two year money, so it'll be available okay. until twenty twenty one, I think. So they're like they're making sure that's available for a period of for a longer period of time than than usual. Uh, I, I I think that the well, so there's there's different there's like we can slice that question a couple different ways like can they create valuable reports that will help in frame frame and inform public debate and congressional debate yes can they do it in a way that's timely to the cycles in which Congress is working <laughs> we don't know right right but and that's true for all of them like that you know CRS is is short and fast but it's not you know it's not insight it's not deep it's not original right. GAO is very good, you know, but they also take a long time. And is there is there a way of sort of balancing that or doing that in a way and sort you get into a rhythm so you know what to expect and you know how it's going to function and and you can you can build your oversight activities around when the reports are expected to come out. And as you right. get started, there's just no way that you can anticipate yet that yet because you just you just won't know yet. But I mean, some of these big legislative issues play out on long time scales there. I mean, Congress might be interested in it, you know, and we have six months before we know we need to th- start, you know, holding hearings. But, you know, debates over federal privacy legislation, updating the Telecom Act, we know these things are coming in advance and they're also things that take years to play out, right? And right. in that context, having more analysis and expertise that can feed into that process i think can make the process faster and can you know add a lot to a lot, a lot of value in terms of what the sort of ultimate output is and um with, with the gao effort with staa or whatever um how, how much money was put towards that they have a budget of about 15 million and mm-hmm. that's happening and they're trying to double in the next year it's largely kind of up to sort of internal GAO process, but technology assessment is only one of four things, you know, four strategic priorities that they're doing. It's one of the big ones, mm-hmm. but they're also doing, they have an innovation lab that's rethinking how they do audits and analyze the effectiveness of federal programs, which is much needed and was an issue that, you know, came up with, uh, you know, some of these IT modernization conversations and what 18F is doing and like, they're also, you know, doing some standard setting stuff within federal government. They're 
you know, and a lot of their technology assessment, if you like read their strategic plan and their landscape is they're doing some of the traditional OTA stuff, but they're also just inherently a little bit more oriented to sort of where this technology government intersection is. Mm-hmm. Let, let, let's see this in the bigger context, right? Like, o, whether it's technology assessment, science and technology advice from OTA or from GAO, you know, the customer in one respect is Congress, its committees and its personal offices and its leadership. And uh, you can have the best possible advice, but if you don't have people who have the time to read it or, or who can understand it, we're able to do something with it. Like that is a parallel problem that needs to be addressed, um, uh, sort of at the same time. In in as we judge the effectiveness of of restoring OTA or building out the STAA, uh, that also is going to you know be contingent upon where Congress is and what's right. going on and how many people do they have and are they ex you know and and this is this is. We won't know the outcome of this in two years. Like in five years or in ten years, we'll have a much better sense of it. And it also suggests pointing to the OTA-like entities that exist around the world and are there things that we can learn from them as we stand up um, OTA here again in the U.S.? I mean, to, to add on to Daniel's point, I mean, we talked about the sort of cuts to congressional staff and here, the sort of like reduction in size and power of congressional committees is the like key issue. And if you have you know committee staff that are overworked and covering five different huge issues, uh, and then turnover every year or two, you don't really have the capacity to absorb the and and think carefully through the sort of deep analysis that an OTA does. The other factor is sort of what are the political incentives that encourage members and committees to, you know, do good policymaking for the sake of good policymaking rather than, you know, holding political theater. I mean, we saw a lot of political theater with some discussions over anti-conservative bias. We talked about that recently. There was another recent one that Senator Ted Cruz organized and you're not going to stop that kind of thing from happening with more expertise right you're always going to have some level of just sort of political hearings that are serving a political purpose but i think the theory is that if you put this kind of robust authoritative in-house expertise out there that it sort of creates its own incentive and becomes something people have to grapple with in these debates. And it has, it grounds some of these debates in reality. It creates a common set of facts more than, I mean, this sort of trend now is that you have your facts and I have mine and (laughs) they don't agree. And that is not a particularly functional arrangement. And, And it also addresses sort of the effort to find those common facts. So we had an effort last Congress to create an encryption commission, which my organization and others opposed because we didn't know who was going to be on it. Like there was no reason to trust that the process or the outcome would be anything that would be even remotely reasonable. But when you have a place where that, that is a known quantity, it becomes possible to, to trust a little bit more. And that is something that, you know, in Congress at least is sorely lacking is the ability to, to, have those common facts to be able to trust one another, to be able to 
to argue on a policy basis and on a polemical basis. So that that does raise the question in terms of you know in bringing back the OTA, how do, how um, how do they set it up in a way that that actually people do consider it to be sort of unbiased and trustworthy? Well, yeah, a, I mean, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. So it, it's a good question, but we have experience doing that. You know, CRS and GAO both have different models for for functioning, um, but they're both viewed as being nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the effort around OTA when it was a thing was that there was this this uh, advisory board that would sort of help act as a filter. I'm not sure that that necessarily works in the current environment anymore. I think the nature of the world has changed where that's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are ways, and even with CBO that's been more politicized of late, uh, there are ways to, you know, the majority and the minority has to agree on who the, the person who the head is going to be, or that they're, you know, like it's possible to come up with processes to make sure that people are generally speaking happy with who's running it, or that, um, like, so when I wrote reports at CRS, there's three or four levels of review mm-hmm. for everything that we wrote to make sure that I was looking at political bias. Now, made the reports very, fairly sterile. Like, it wasn't always as, as, you know, what it is now. They used to be a little bit more lively. Um, uh, but there are ways of sort of balancing that right where you get the benefit of expertise, um, uh, but you also know that they're trying to play it straight. Right. Uh, on, on a somewhat related note, I guess, you know, one of the things that I know that you guys um, fought for previously, and you mentioned the every CRS report site, um, you know, the CRS reports used to be mostly kept secret, right? Where, uh, you know, I mean, members of Congress would ask for it uh, and CRS would deliver it. And then that, that member of Congress could choose to make it public. But most of the CRS reports never became public. Um, and you guys pushed for, for making them uh, more public. And now they are in, in various ways. Um, it, how, how does that stand with the OTA? Do the reports that they come out with, are those going to be public or, or not? They, they were historically. O, uh-huh. OTA was actually one of the examples that we cited to um, when we were arguing for public access to CRS reports. And, you know, in, in the history of that, just very briefly, as you know, it's like the reports were never secret, but, right. they, were, but they were unequally available. So, <laughs> and, 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 that, and that's often the problem, where you have like a disparate access, an unequal access to information that uh, is relevant and used in the public domain. And, and OTA reports have been publicly available. Now, there might have been advice happening behind the scenes that might not have been. Uh, and the same thing is true with the Congressional Research Service, that there's con- CRS memos and CRS, um, uh, you know, like emails and other advice that's not publicly available and no one's arguing uh, that those things should be. And I suspect that the same thing would be true for OTA, where there would be public-facing conclusions as the result of the long-standing process. But when OTA goes and gives advice to a committee, um, no one's going to put a camera on them as they're having their meeting in the committee room. Like that's not going to that's not going to be a thing, right? Um, so, and and what in terms of the the appropriation stuff? What is the the general timing uh, in terms of determining where this goes? Oh, that is the um, one point four three trillion dollar question. Like <laughs> uh, it's it's so on the House side, the House will pass its appropriations bill probably in June. The mm-hmm. Senate's starting starting to have its markups. I think they, they start fairly shortly. But they have the House and the Senate and the White House have a f- fundamental disagreement over 
what the number, what the top line number should be for each of these 12 appropriation subcommittees and what the overall amount of like federal spending should be, where they're fighting over how much money goes towards defense and how much money goes towards non-defense and like all this other nonsense. Right. So it could go fast. Like, you know, ledge branch approach bills where this money will be usually uh, one of the first things to go along with energy and water. They're not controversial. It could be done very quickly. Um, it was done very quickly last year. Or it can be something that goes very slow and they fight over it and maybe the government shut down, maybe it doesn't. Maybe <laughs> they, I mean, like, hopefully, hopefully, like, they will do this soon because they should. Right. Um, I suspect that the, the question about the top line sort of funding numbers is going to mess everything up. Yeah. Um, interesting. And then, so the, the actual appropriations then would be for the next two years. So it would start in, in 2020. Well, it's, it's one year. So they usually oh. do appropriations on a, on a one year. So we're looking at fiscal year 2020, which mm -hmm. is October to October. Got it. Um, but, the, but they can, you know, the great thing it's Congress, so you can write it however you want. So like, so, so some of the money, it, it's not available just for one year. Some of it's available for two years. Some of it could be available for longer. It's however they choose to draft it. Um, it. Yeah. So it's appropriations law is really, really bizarre. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, that's an area I don't understand at all. So it's, it's kind of fascinating. Um, so, but, but in theory, this could, you know, this sort of you know revamp of OTA could could be spun up as early as October. Yeah, best best case scenario, um, mm -hmm. they they would pass the appropriations bill in the House and the Senate and have agreement, and the president signs it June or July, um, and then the money becomes available in October, um, October first. It would become you know they'd be able to spend it, and the, they probably have started thinking even before then about who they would want potentially on. Right. on the technology advisory board or whatever, and they would have right. some kind so it could go pretty quick but according to statute you'd have yeah. to have you know mcconnell would pick six people and and Pelosi would pick six people and we'd you know hopefully everyone agrees there they'd then you know work to interview and select a director who had gone to hire the staff and deal with finding, you know, space for their building and getting all the, you know, methodological systems in place and updating things. And I mean, there's a lot of work they need to do just to get back up and running. The original, right. uh, you know, is, it was authorized in 1972, but didn't get going until 1974. And, you know, these things just sort of take a little while to get running and they wouldn't have the benefit of all of the same institutional knowledge that they once had. Right. Uh, and it's definitely a different political environment in Congress. <laughs> the needs are different. It's more, I think, more polarized. And it's also an agency that comes with some baggage in terms of, you know, how conservatives perceive it uh, because of the you know, Gingrich legacy that's largely like I think it's shifting on the right, but there are definitely still a large number of Republicans who are skeptical of this idea. Yeah, and, right. I, and, I sh and I should say, that, like in in context, Congress last year and the year before, they've been creating or updating a bunch of their institutions. The entity that dealt with sexual harassment, the Office of Compliance, became the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights. It's a different thing with different responsibilities with a law they passed. 
The House has created a whistleblower ombudsman. They're creating a diversity office. So, like, there is more creativity happening now with building structures that help solve uh, some of the problems that they have. The SDAA is another thing that they're, you know, they're in the process of creating on a sort of multi-year basis. So there does seem to be an appetite to to experiment with making Congress work a little bit better, and that's a really good thing. Right. Yeah. No, it, it, it sounds good. It'll be interesting to see how this moves forward, and it's you know it's a topic that I've written about a bunch, and and that I hope actually does go forward because um, you know I'm kind of sick of of Congress being stupid <laughs> on, yeah. on tech policy issues. It would be nice if they weren't. So I mean, I think they're tired of it too. And, they, yeah. and you know what it is? They're tired of being embarrassed. Yeah. You know, be, because the you know the the argument, well, we should cut and we should cut and we should cut, you know, plays well until you start asking questions that people think are ridiculous, and right. then it starts cutting the other way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, hopefully, hopefully uh, they realize it. I mean, that's the thing. I do wonder how much the people who've been embarrassed actually recognize they've been embarrassed. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I hope I hope that's true, but but we'll see. Um, anyways, um, guys, uh, thanks a lot for I mean all you guys have done in terms of of really promoting this and and pushing this forward and getting people talking about it and recognizing it and 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 getting Congress to to hopefully move forward with it as well. Um, and uh, thanks also for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mark. All right, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll be back next week. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt.